Welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Uh, all through this series, we've been sharing different stories of people as they uh, have processed and learned about generosity. This morning, we're closing out our Above and Beyond series, and last Sunday was an epic Sunday. I'm from Santa Cruz, so I can say that. Uh, it was a gnarly Sunday, too, if you're from Santa Cruz there. It was our Commitment Sunday. It was powerful, and I'm so glad that you came back this week as we close out our series because I believe what God has for us is incredibly important, especially for those in this season who not only made uh, some big steps of like financial commitments with us together, but some personal commitments, some faith steps, because this is an incredibly important time where God wants to speak to you about that uh, and give you some, I just think, some insight into this season. But before we dive into that, uh, you've heard December 2nd. We're going to share our total already. I can tell you it's uh, awesome. Um, We're excited to share it. And I know many of you are still turning in your pledges. So we'll do that December 2nd. Um, On December 2nd, we kick off a brand new series called Bless Up. And we'll be traveling during the Christmas season through the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. It'll be a great series. It will mark a season in the life of our church. This is really exciting where we're going to spend the next seven months after that in the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. And we'll do multiple series through that and it'll begin December 2nd. It's hard to believe that this Thursday is Thanksgiving, isn't it? Any, anybody? Yeah? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Me and Rochelle are in the same place. I was sitting there just thinking about getting up and speaking. I'm like, oh my goodness, the next time we gather, Thanksgiving will have happened. That is bizarre to me. Uh, Next week, we have a special Sunday prepared all around uh, the theme of gratitude. Why don't you pray with me and we'll dive in this morning. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the moments to worship, to come freely before you, sing praise because you've put a new song in our hearts. We invite you in this moment to speak powerfully, to meet us. Father, I pray for the person that walked in and just needed some encouragement, that you would bring encouragement. I pray for the person that's walking in that needs some hope, that you would bring some hope, that needs some healing, you would bring some healing, God. We ask that you would meet us. Father, get me out of the way and allow your word to speak powerfully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Above and Beyond is not just a season, but a series we've been in. Uh, We've talked about it this way, about living above and beyond the status quo, above and beyond mediocrity, above and beyond just existing or going through the motions to a life of significance, of meaning, purpose, a a life that makes a difference. And uh, we said this at the beginning of our series, that God is actually searching right now in this moment, in this room, for a specific type of person. Second Chronicles 16.9 outlines it. It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he might strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That right now, in this moment, God is searching. God is looking. God is on the, 
the horizon scanning and looking for someone whose heart is fully his that he might get behind them in a significant way, that, that he might support them strongly. You see, the principle here is God chooses and uses ordinary, everyday people to do extraordinary things whose heart are fully his. That's the truth of it. And sometimes we think, no, 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 God chooses and uses the most talented. God chooses and uses the most educated. God chooses and uses only the spiritual elite. We call them pastors, those who are paid to be good. (laughs) Or the most... And yet, the truth of it is, is God longs to use you. God longs to use you right where you're at, in the home or the place where you're at, in the neighborhood or apartment where he has you, in the workplace, in the school. He says, I want to use you. I want to strongly support you. I want to get behind you in such a significant way that that if you would look back in a year's time, you would be astounded at what would happen. And the conditions for that type of person is just, do I have your heart? And we've been looking at the last five weeks, five conditions, we'll close on the six, of what does it look like to be a woman or a man whose heart is completely his? And we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. Our model is Nehemiah. We started with a dislocated heart, a broken heart, a heart that breaks for the thing that breaks God's heart. Then a dependent spirit that, that is, my heart begins to break for what's uh, breaking God's heart. Then I'm going to lean in, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to cry out to God. And then you have to take a step of faith. You have to trust God. And we talked week four about a strategic plan. It's not just like, oh, what's going to happen? That, that we, we have this great plan that we prayed through and go, okay, we're going to be wise about the way we move. And last week we talked about this personal commitment. Well, many of you on this journey have made a personal commitment. I've had lots of conversations, and what I love about our Above and Beyond series is that it's been so much more than just simply... Um, financial or raising a sum of money, what I've watched is God's doing a deep discipleship work in the life of our church. I was talking to one person last week, and they were letting me know, throughout this Above and Beyond series, it's been a turning point in their life and in their family's life, and and it began with just a courageous prayer. God, would you help me to live above and beyond for you? That was it. God, would you just help me to live above and beyond for you more, more, more so than I ever have been? I just felt like I've been drifting in my relationship with God, drifting through life. And if you're in that space where you've made a personal commitment, then this sermon is for you. We're closing this week out. The final condition is that of a courageous soul. And here's the reason why. Our greatest personal commitments and spiritual victories are almost always followed by periods of intense opposition. Our greatest personal commitments, and you're going to, some of you are going to experience it come January when you make a commitment, or I'm going to make a commitment to get healthy 
And about two weeks later, you're going to have intense opposition of a party. But that's silly. But it's true, isn't it, that you've made a significant personal commitment in life. And and there's something in our mind, especially when it comes to taking a step towards Jesus, taking a, a significant step. I'm going to take a step towards purity in the way that I'm living life. I'm going to take a step of integrity. I'm going to be, take a step in becoming a woman or man of integrity and character. I'm going to take a step to be a person of kindness when I so often react in anger. And we think, well, isn't that a good step? Yeah, yes, it is. And so shouldn't it go easy? And so we become disillusioned when we experience opposition. In fact, too many people are caught off guard when they make these personal commitments or have this real big spiritual moment. We expect it to go easy, and we prepare for it to go easy. But here's the thing. Just because it is a God thing doesn't mean it's going to be an easy thing. And so... If you're in that place where you've made a step towards Jesus, a personal commitment, a courageous soul is required. We've been studying the life of Nehemiah, and what I love about the, the, his memoirs and what he wrote is he doesn't sugarcoat it, and he doesn't dismiss what was hard about that season. In fact, he takes three chapters to outline the opposition he experienced as he and the people embarked to build this, the walls around Jerusalem. Uh, we don't have time to teach all three chapters. Let me give you a broad sweep, sweeping overview, and then we'll dive in into chapter 4, uh, as I believe this is one of the big areas we have in the life um, of American society that we need to talk about. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 through 6, if you got your notes, you have the, the um, graph or what do you call that thing, chart in your notes. Chapter 4, we see the opposition is external. He has uh, external foes, a guy named Sanballat, a guy named Tobiah, but these guys represented enemies that were surrounding Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem on all four sides was, was surrounded by hostile enemies wanting to thwart uh, the rebuilding of the wall. In chapter 5, we see internal issues. It, it wasn't external issues with those outside trying to, to thwart the rebuilding. It was internal. It was the Jewish nobles. It was a division among the camp. In chapter 6, we see a personal attack on Nehemiah targeted at his character and integrity. Well, in chapter 4, the strategy for the external opposition was ridicule and fear. They mocked and they threatened him. They, they said, hey, we're going to come fight you and stop you. In chapter 5, the internal uh, strategy of the nobles is that of selfishness. It was one where the rich were exploiting the poor. You saw uh, an incredible greed take place internally. In chapter 6, the strategy was that of deception. There, the goal was to try to distract Nehemiah from the great work, to, to somehow discredit his name. In fact, uh, Sambal sent out a letter. It was an open letter, meaning that it wasn't sealed, uh, that this letter with full of accusations about his character and his intentions was to be read to everyone who came across that, to pull him away from what God did. In chapter 4, we go back to the goal of the enemy or the opposition, the external 
ridicule, feel, uh, fear. The goal was to dishearten, to lose strength. I just can't go on anymore. Chapter 5, the internal opposition that revealed in selfishness. The goal was division. And this is, by the way, if you've gotten your notes, John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And here's what we see is Jesus knows the thing that will thwart. I'm using the word thwart a lot, actually. I'm just hearing it over. That will hinder. Let's, let's use some other synonyms. That will hinder the work of God in the church is division. Selfishness. My own needs. John chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And you know what he prays for his disciples? It's the, the only time we see Jesus pray specifically for those who will come after him, which means he's praying for you and for me. He prays this prayer. I pray that they may be one, even as the Father and I are one. Why? Because he knew one of the greatest challenges for us would be in our differences to be divided instead of play to our strength. In chapter 6, where it's a personal attack, the strategy's deception, the enemy's goal, the opposition's goal is to derail him personally, to to take him out. You know, it's been said that it takes 10 years to build a name or a character, but only 10 minutes to lose it, a personal burnout or a blowout. Chapter 4, the response then, external opposition, ridicule, fear, Goal to disheartened, the response was to fight, to take your stand. And we're going to talk about that because we don't use that terminology too often in this day and age. In chapter 5, the internal response, Jewish nobles responding selfishly, this division in the camp, the poor crying out because they're being unjustly treated. The response was to confront. It wasn't just going to get better. At some point, when you see an injustice, when you see division, when there's internal issues, you you cannot ignore it any longer. You actually have to confront it and call it out. And he confronts the nobles and says, what you're doing is not right. And because he lived a life of integrity, he was able to call it out in those who were not. Notice it was internal, not external. By the way, we get this wrong in the church. We confront everyone outside the church, but we don't deal with our issues inside the church. Internal issues. And then finally, chapter 6, this personal opposition, the strategy, deception, the goal to derail him, and the response is discernment. To be able to see through the enemy's schemes. To have the discernment to know what's right and what's wrong. To to be a person that has built your life upon the word of God so you can discern through the words of men. And understand, this is the way, walk in it. In the book of Isaiah, there's this line that's always stuck out to me. It says, whenever you turn to the right or the left, you'll hear my voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. That we would walk so close to Jesus, that, that we would get into his word, that we'd actually know what he, his heartbeat and what he says. So that, that when we get things coming into our life, we have the ability to discern what is right and true. 
This morning, we're going to settle in on chapter 4 on external opposition and talk about how do we handle external opposition. In fact, I believe there's two offensive attacks. You'll see it in the text, uh, or tactics of the enemy. Tactic number one is criticism. Tactic number two is discouragement. And how do we handle criticism and how do we handle discouragement? Nehemiah gives us such a great example of how to move forward in the face of criticism and how to move forward in the face of opposition. If you got your Bibles, would you open them up to Nehemiah chapter 4? We pick it up in verse 1. Nehemiah 4 verse 1 begins this way. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall... They're in the middle of a good, significant work. He became angry and was greatly incensed. Anytime you do anything that is significant, you will experience opposition. Bank on it. He ridiculed the Jews. If you got, if, if you got your Bibles, just underline that word. We don't use that word ridicule. That often. He ridiculed them, put them down, made fun of them, belittled them. Notice this. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, showing a little might there, talking out loud, hanging out just outside the, the rebuilding project, speaking in such a way that everyone can hear him, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? (laughs) Feeble is literally the word where it means to be withered, uh, a a withered plant. Man, they're they're just so weak. They're so wimpy. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? No way. Come on. It's beyond gone. Will they offer sacrifices again? Not likely. Will they finish in a day? Well, that was never the goal. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Just imagine, you've been working on this wall. You're putting your heart and your strength to this good work. It already feels impossible, and then somebody points it out. Somebody begins to question your capacity. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side said, I, I, I shouldn't say I like this, but I mean, it's f- fairly clever. What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their walls of stone. It is so weak, it couldn't protect them. Remember last week we said there is no professional builder upon them. Imagine the insecurity they had of whether they're doing it correct. The first tactic of The opposition is that of criticism. Criticism is powerful, by the way. Criticism is pervasive in our culture. Part of the reason why criticism is so powerful is criticism enters through the doors of our emotions. It bypasses our intellect and goes straight towards the heart. You ever had something said about you and intellectually you can reason it all away, but emotionally it bothers you. And so... I believe how to handle criticism, we got to first recognize and then respond. You'll notice this for both discouragement 
and criticism. We have to first recognize a few things and then respond. If we don't recognize, what we do intuitively is we react and end up making things worse, not better. First thing we need to recognize when it comes to criticism is the difference between feedback and criticism. There is a difference. And for some, what you call criticism actually is feedback. It's in your workplace. My boss is just criticizing me. Maybe, or maybe that person is just telling you the truth about the way you're working so that you could get better. My spouse is always criticizing me. Maybe, or maybe there's a way in which you're going about life that needs some feedback. Here's the difference between feedback and criticism. Feedback is for the express goal to enhance, to build up, or to make better. Feedback is for the express goal to enhance, to build up, or to make better. I'm going to give you feedback not because I do not love you. It's because I love you, and I want you to get better. I see such capacity in you. I see such gifting in you. And if I don't speak into this issue, you will be destroyed by it. Every parent knows this. They've experienced this. When they see their kids and acting and reacting in a way, they're not criticizing. Now, certainly, parents, we can criticize our kids. Not every time we speak to our kids is feedback. It can be critical. We'll talk about that in a second. But our motive, our heart, our goal, and desire. The first, when you begin to get any type of thing, what it feels like criticism, ask, well, is this feedback or is it criticism? Well, what is criticism? Criticism is for the purpose of tearing you down. Criticism is to put one in one's place, making yourself feel better at the expense of another. Criticism is is to just belittle and to put down, not for anything that is productive, except to make the other feel better about themselves. And then we first have to ask, okay, is what I'm receiving criticism or feedback? And in my role, I've gotten a lot of both. I get up on Sundays, and I proclaim God's word, and I get feedback and criticism. It takes discernment to really know, okay, which is which? And realizing the who matters a lot. Who's saying it really means a lot. Oh, I know they love me. They wouldn't say that to put me down. I'm receiving it as criticism, but it's really feedback. The second thing we got to recognize about criticism is a little criticism goes a long way, doesn't it? Haven't you experienced that where where someone just said something offhanded and it was just the littlest thing and it ruined your day? It ruined your week? It ruined your night of sleep? You couldn't stop thinking about it and you kept rehearsing it in your mind? Uh, neurologists tell us that, uh, that our minds uh, respond to bad things and criticism like Velcro. It just sticks. And the good and the positive encouraging, they let us know that it re- our minds respond to it like Teflon. It just slides right off. That's the way our minds naturally are wired 
And we immediately highlight and stick to and gravitate to that which is negative. And so if you're like shaming yourself, it was just a little thing. I shouldn't feel that bad. I shouldn't feel that way. Well, remember, a little criticism goes a long way. It's okay. Now, don't stay there. We'll talk about that. But it's okay. Uh, The Harvard Business Review posted an article letting us know that top-performing teams give each other more than five positive comments for every single criticism. The power of speaking life. I'm reminded of that as a dad. Because I want to course correct so often And I really want to learn the language of encouragement. The power of a little criticism that it goes a long way with our friends. The power of a sarcastic word. You know, we hear things like this. And it plays on repeat in our minds. You'll never amount to anything. Who do you think you are? It's impossible. Why try? Give up. You're not that special. Might as well quit before you fail. Don't waste your life. You're an idiot. You're a moron. You're stupid. Please, kids, don't repeat that because the pastor said those words. Is that all you got? And isn't it true some of those lines have been spoken into your life from a mentor, from a friend, from a parent, and they've played on repeat. And have done such great harm to you. How to handle external opposition. The first tactic of the enemy is, is to really criticize us. It enters through the doors of our emotions. Why it's so powerful. You recognize the difference between feedback and criticism. That a little criticism goes a long way. And here, listen to this. Your enemy wants to use this to cripple you. Notice. I did not say that person. We need to be very clear about who the enemy is as followers of Jesus. 1 Peter 5.9 says this way. Be alert of sober mind. Watch out. Be on your guard. Why? Your enemy. Who's the enemy? Says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. That that the enemy wants to use little things of criticism to cripple you in your walk with him. To shame you, to keep you stuck. That personal commitment that you made. He wants to use a little word of criticism that would cause you to give up and get out and go, why try? It says, be alert, resist him. Standing firm in your faith because you know... You know that you're in good company. The family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Ephesians 5, 6 says it this way. Next slide. Finally, be strong. We're going to talk in a second how to be strong, how to fight criticism in your heart. In the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against who? Okay, we're going to try this. Now the devil, Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. (laughs) Friends, you are not in a spiritual cakewalk. You are in a spiritual battle. Get ready. And we just kind of walk around 
completely oblivious. And when we make the other person the enemy, we've already lost the battle. He says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that person, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Your enemy wants to use this to cripple you. And that person may have said something and don't even realize that it hurt you. When we started this church a little over six years ago, I remember um, it was in a season where God was really beginning to use uh, my preaching. And for any of you who've done public speaking or arts, uh, the minute you come up and show, you know, and prepare, it's a very vulnerable state. You're just like, I just worked on this. Do you like it, you know? And and so you begin to build some confidence. You're like, all right, okay, God's using this. And you get some healthy God confidence. And, And so I was watching God begin to use my preaching in some really significant, powerful ways. And it's right before the launch of our church. And so I sit down with a good buddy, And we're sitting there, and we had just brought on another guy that was a fantastic communicator. And he makes this side comment. I'm so glad he's on there. I think he's a better communicator than you. Oh. Ouch. And I, you know, I did all the mental justifications and things like that. And, well, you know what, this and that. And we're just different in our styles. And he communicates that way. You probably resonate more that way. I didn't say all that. I thought all that. Friends, let me tell you, he was not the enemy. But the enemy wanted to use that to cripple me. For two and a half to three years of this church, I was so insecure about my preaching. And I came up front, and I presented it instead of, this is God's word for you. It was, I hope you like it. I hope it's good. I, I hope you'll, you'll say something kind, because I'm pretty fragile and insecure. And you cannot preach God's word that way. You cannot lean into it. And, and here's the deal. There's things in your life Words that have been spoken over you that are not true, that you keep leaning into. And the enemy wants to use it to cripple you. And so, how do we respond? I love Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4, he says this. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Calls it out. Uh, this, is, this is bold. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Don't you wish you could pray prayers like that? Well, you can, just in the privacy of your home, please. (laughs) Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from their sight. That's not very Christian of you, Nehemiah. Well, he's angry, get it? For they have thrown insults in our face, in the face of the builders. And then I love verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall. We didn't stop the work because they were criticizing us. They were ridiculing us. We rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. Respond. The primary response when we receive criticism is prayer is our primary weapon. Prayer. Now, you may disagree with this prayer. That's fine. 
Psalm 35, 1, David's prayer is this. Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Nehemiah focuses his anger. Nehemiah focuses his discouragement. All of his emotions, he, emotions, he focuses them in prayer to God. Where do we focus our emotions? Where do we focus our anger? We focus them to our friends or back onto the person. We go, no, no, no. Prayer puts criticism in its proper perspective. We begin to get on our knees and pray and go to God. Go to God. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons we fight with are not of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And perhaps that criticism put a stronghold in your life that you've been living in. And he says, pray, come to me, bring all of you, not the censored you. For some of you, you've been praying safe prayers, afraid to really bring the true you to God. Nehemiah just brought his feelings, his emotions. He brought it straight to God. And he said, here I am. And God met him there. God can handle all of you, not just the good parts of you. Secondly, be wise in how you live. Be wise. If you have time to study the life of Nehemiah, you'll notice that he lived incredibly shrewdly with a man of integrity. If you live for the praises of people, you'll die by their criticism. Be wise in the way you live. Who are you living for? What, what applause are you living for? Speak truth in your heart. Live above reproach. In fact, one of the prayers that I have, and I go through a cadence in my own personal life, is uh, I don't do this every day, but I do it a few times a week, and I, I literally get on my knees, and I've shared this before, and I just pray through every part of my body. Uh, it's that whole, uh, you know, bring your body, you know, um, what is it? Uh, therefore, as uh, living sacrifices, present your body as a living sacrifice. That verse, uh, Romans 12, 1, I butchered, butched it, but, um, you know, therefore, since we are, uh, uh, anyways. <laughs> Brain's not on full gear. I think I'm shifting into vacation mode. And I started to just begin to pray, and I'd start with my mind, and I'd say, Heavenly Father, would you give me the mind of Christ? May my mind be set on things above, not on things below. God, my eyes, would you guard me from anything that's impure? May I see others the way you see them. May I have your vision and your, your sight. God, and then I get to my ears, and this is the part I wanted to get to. God, would you guard me from the lies and deceptions of the enemy? Heavenly Father, may your voice be louder than any other voice in my life. May I hear your Spirit's prompting. And where you begin to live in a wise way, where you go, okay, I'm going to begin to pray towards this. I'm going to begin to put God's word in my heart and mind. I'm going to be aware that, that when I re- overreact in this, it means that, that I'm actually more concerned with what other people think than what God thinks of me. One of the things that my wife said years ago in ministry, because you get a lot of feedback and criticism in ministry, is she said, Ryan, you need a I don't suck file. It's literally on your down days, your blue days, and there's a little file in our, our drawer, and it has some notes and cards, and you got to just remember, you know what? You're not as good as the fans or people around you tell you, 
and you're not as bad as your critics tell you. And you just have an I don't suck file. And for some, you just need that. My boss gave me a good review. Why? Because your mind, like Teflon, anything good, it just slips by. You forget. And like Velcro, everything bad it sticks to. So how do you make sure that you keep what's good and true in front of you? And then finally, prayer is your primary weapon. Be wise in how you live. Always take the high road. I guess second to finally. Always take the high road. Do not respond in kind. Do not stoop to their level when responding to criticism. Notice he doesn't even address, Nehemiah doesn't even address them. In fact, that's the next one. No response is often the best response. Always take the high road. No response is often the best response. Secure people celebrate other people's successes. Insecure people criticize other people's successes. The criticisms of others reveal more about them than it does about what they're criticizing. And it's true for us as well. How to handle external opposition? The first tactic of the enemy is criticism. So we've got to recognize, and then we have to respond. The second is then the tactic of discouragement. Notice this, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. And I'm... I intentionally spent the lion's share of our time with criticism because I feel like we are in such a um, society and feedback loop, especially online. We're living in this on a daily basis. Our teenagers are living in this every single day. The school ground no longer, you know, is like the place where you get it. You get it 24-7, and we're slowly being afraid to do anything with conviction because we're afraid we'll be criticized. So discouragement. Notice, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashad heard that the repairs of Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed in, they were very angry. And what you'll notice is he lists all those people and it reveals the people of the north, the south, the east, and the west that they're all surrounding the Jewish people. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed. And if, you're, if, you, if this is like the best verse to underline in your Bibles, if you're one of those underliners. But we prayed to our God and, I love that line, and posted a guard uh, day and night to meet the threat. See, when you experience discouragement... You have to first recognize the cause and then respond proactively. It, it is both prayer and. It's not just, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray. God gave you wisdom and an intellect and resources around you. Recognize the cause. You'll notice in the text, and I don't have time to unpack all this. We, we experience discouragement when fatigue sets in. It says that the people were losing their strength. You are most vulnerable to spiritual opposition when you're tired. And you can be tired for doing a very good thing. We've been talking about this with our staff. Galatians 6, 9 says, And do not grow weary in doing good. So you can get tired of doing the right thing and soon become discouraged. Recognize the cause when fatigue sets in, when perspective is lost. It, it talks about them saying, they literally have this line, where it says, 
you know, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Now, did you notice earlier, it said they had already rebuilt the wall to half its size. They had already made incredible progress. And yet, because they got tired, their perspective began to wane, and they're like, we'll never do it. Instead of going, look at how much we had already accomplished. And then when fear takes over, the Jews near them lived, uh, they began to tell us, it says 10 times over, wherever you turn, you're going to be attacked. And discouragement comes often when we're tired, when we lose perspective, or when we're experiencing fear or anxiety. And when you experience discouragement, you got to be alert. You got to be alert. Remember, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around. Now, when does the enemy attack? When you're tired. When does a lion attack a gazelle? When it's isolated. What do you do when you're discouraged? You isolate yourself. You pull back from the community, the people, and the things in your life that are your strengths and your supports around you. First thing Nehemiah did was he began to post guards behind the workers. I love that picture. As they're doing the work and as they're tired, he posts a guard behind them. And for us, when you're discouraged, you got to respond proactively and get key people behind you. The power of being in community is, is when we're in community, they are able to be behind us when we hit those moments of discouragement, when we hit those spaces, when we feel like we cannot go on. And they're like, no, 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 I'm behind you. You can do it. Do not isolate yourself or withdraw. That is what it feels like. That's the only thing we feel like we can do and we have to be proactive. Get key people behind you and then look up. When you're discouraged, we tend to look in. Why me? This is awful. My life sucks. Nehemiah says this to them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Get key people behind you, then look up, not in. Look up and see God for who he is. That's right, I have a good God. That's right, you've been faithful all these years. That's right, you are great and awesome, and I'm going to run to you. Look up and see God, and then keep fighting. Keep fighting. When you're discouraged, keep fighting. Keep going. Take the next step. You're like, I don't know if I'll ever make it. That's okay. Take the next step. You're like, it feels impossible. That's okay. Take the next step. I'm overwhelmed and there's too much to do. I get that. Just take the next step. Keep fighting. Keep going. Hudson Taylor, who's a famous missionary to China, wrote this. There are three stages to every great work of God. First, it's impossible. Then it's difficult. Then it's done. Keep fighting the good fight. Nehemiah 6, 15, he closes this way. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Why? Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Listen, criticism doesn't last forever. 
Your critics don't last forever. Opposition doesn't last forever. There is a day when the wall will be finally built. I want to invite you to stand as we close, and we're going to close in worship. And I just want to speak some words over you, because for some, you've been living, you've been living out the words of your critic. You've been crippled. Or for others, you've been stuck in discouragement. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit of God just wants to breathe life into you. There's a day in your life when the wall will be fully built. There's a day when the critics will be silenced. There will be a day when discouragement is vanquished. And until that day, let us fight the good fight. Hebrews 12. Verses 1 and 2 is one of those life verses for me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you are not on your own even though you feel on your own. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, that personal commitment. And for some, you've got to throw off the voice of your critic. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. What was that joy? It was you, friends. It was you. You are his joy. And he said, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so we will not fix our eyes on our circumstances. We will not fix our eyes on the words of others. We will fix our eyes on our Savior. Your God-sized vision is worth fighting for. Your sobriety is worth fighting for. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Your integrity is worth fighting for. Your family is worth fighting for. Friends, you're a difference maker. That's worth fighting for.